3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast. Today you'll hear conversations on politics, alternative news, community actions and other updates. In the small strip of land which is Gaza, life is precarious, a situation which increases with each bombing and aerial assaults by Israel, targeting homes, schools, health clinics, hospitals and as well as we'll hear today, leading to millions of dollars of destruction of vital food supplies and infrastructure, including greenhouses, crops, vegetables and livestock. And half of these farms and enterprises are owned and managed by approximately 1,500 women. For a number of years, these women have been coordinating and networking under the Gaza Urban Peri Urban Agricultural Platform, GUPAP, and here in Australia, a number of groups have organised a solidarity campaign to raise $25,000 to support a number of women at this time of high need, still recovering from the May bombings. One of the groups involved is Sustain, and I'm speaking today with Nick Rose, who is the Executive Director. Nick, first could you identify Sustain, how you work, where to and to what ends? Sustain is a national sustainable food systems organisation. Our mission is to design and build better food systems across Australia. These are food systems that are life-enhancing rather than life-destroying. We're also a registered health promotion charity and our charitable purpose is to reduce the burden of chronic dietary-related disease and ill health on the Australian population through holistic, integrated food systems interventions. Now, what we're talking about today is Palestine, in particular Gaza. How does this happen for you? Because you're talking about work in Australia. That's right. However, we have connections to Palestine and to Gaza. Personally, I travelled to Palestine in 2015 to attend an international critical geographers conference that was held that year in Ramallah. Various presentations about the impacts of the occupation and what that meant for people living across Palestine. And then um, from our organisation's perspective, we have been working in the field of urban agriculture and urban food systems since our commencement in 2016. So Sustain has now held three national urban agriculture forums where we have brought together presenters from around Australia and, and indeed internationally exploring different aspects of urban food systems and urban agriculture and the many benefits and positive changes that they can bring about for urban populations and at the second of those forums that was held in February 2018 at the William Angus Institute, we received an invitation from a Gazan organisation, the Gaza Urban and Peri-Urban Agriculture Network, to present about their work. 
which we were able to facilitate via a live stream presentation. So Ahmed Surani is the founder and coordinator of GUPAP, is the acronym, Gaza Urban and Peri-Urban Agriculture Platform, uh, presented to our audience in Melbourne uh, in February 2018. So we had that, uh, that connection there. And then in May this year, following the intense bombardment of Gaza by the Israeli military, uh, Ahmed uh, reached out to us, as he did to other international organisations, seeking support and solidarity. Since that approach, uh, which came at the end of May this year, we've been in weekly dialogue and discussion with Ahmed and his colleagues from Gaza, together with the allied organisation here, the Global Gardens of Peace, that has led us to jointly formulate a crowdfunding campaign where we are making a call to uh, all people in Melbourne and indeed across Australia and internationally who appreciate the great difficulties under which people in Gaza are living to support this initiative where the call has come directly from the people on the ground in Gaza, the coordinators of the of GUPAP where they have been working with small-scale women-owned primary production and small-scale food processing businesses in the Gaza Strip who are wanting to achieve greater food security and food sovereignty for their communities and for Palestine to rebuild and become uh, successful, viable, small-scale women-owned agri-enterprises into the future. So that's what this campaign is about, and that's how it came about. Just before we go on to Gaza, what did you find out about agriculture in the West Bank? Is urban agriculture a feature of the West Bank, or have they got more broader areas to grow food? The the, the conference that I attended, uh, the main focus was on the impacts of the of the occupation in terms of people's movement and economic activity. It wasn't specifically about agriculture, but as I said, we, we had a visit out to the Jordan Valley where it's more what we'd understand in Australia, I guess, is rural or, or regional agriculture. But certainly there is urban agriculture, small-scale uh, market gardening, keeping of you know, small-scale livestock, poultry and so on, taking place in the West Bank as indeed there is in Gaza. But the reality is that there's a, a very high level of food import dependency, so the aspiration for self-determination, self-provisioning, food security and food sovereignty is, is not being met currently. Well, moving on to GUPAC, um, tell us a bit more about the organisation and how long it's been in operation. GUPAC has been in operation for several years now. Uh, launched in 2013, it uh, described itself as being a multi-stakeholder interactive and participatory forum, bringing together key actors involved in the development of a resilient Palestinian agriculture sector in the Gaza Strip, currently made up of 80 members, including national and local government institutions, NGO civil society institutions, women, organisations and cooperatives and activists. That's the Urban Women Agripreneurs Forum that's the focus of this campaign private businesses, research and educational institutions, microfinance institutions, urban women, agripreneurs, as I said, value chain forums. So they have been supported by international cooperation agencies in their establishment phase, 2013-2017, uh, and they've been building their work since then. The focus, as indeed sustain, is on you know direct on-the-ground capacity building and initiatives in terms of food production, but they're also very strongly focused on advocacy both to 
Palestinian governmental organisations as well as the international community. So yes, they, they say that over the last few years, they've been focusing on local food policies, essentially local market-oriented urban and peri-urban agriculture development. They've done a, a needs assessment of national products in Gaza and Palestine dates, dairy products, looking at the situation about trade and imports. They've been involved in the activation of the Committee for the Development of the Date Palm Sector. They've done an advocacy campaign on women's rights in agriculture and food production. They've also been active in the Consumer Protection Association plan and launched a buy local campaign. So those are some of the things that, that FUPAP has been undertaking over the last few years. Well, we're talking about the small-scale women farmers, and I'd imagine that most of those women are the breadwinners of the family when you consider the situation that has been in Gaza for many years. Yes, that's exactly right. So it's the case around the world. You know, we're, we're constantly told that the world population is growing, that, you know, we need to increase food to feed the growing global population, you know, need to boost production, need to embrace new technologies, Big, big agriculture, high-tech, you know, uh, new crops and, and hybrid seeds, genetically modified seeds and so on. That's actually a bit of a distortion of the reality when if we take into account all the food that is produced, what it's actually used for in terms of biofuels and animal feed as well as the food that's wasted. Uh, right now, today, enough food is being grown globally to feed, you know, by some estimate, 10 or 11 billion people. That's one uh, key point to note. The other is that in terms of who actually feeds the world's population, it is actually the small-scale peasant producers of the world who feed about 70% of the world's population with only uh, 25% of the world's agricultural land. And the bulk of the small-scale and peasant producers globally are indeed women. Uh, women do the work of both growing the food and feeding their communities. And they do so in difficult circumstances with uh, insecure access to land and often encountering various forms of oppression and, and discrimination. Uh, you're absolutely right. That's very much the case in Gaza, where there are, uh, by some estimates, between 1,000 to 1,500 women-owned businesses that are producing food, processing food across a, a range of sectors. And GUPAP have been working to support the collective organisation of that group of small-scale women producers into their own forum, their own platform called the Urban Women Agripreneurs Forum. They're bringing together about 100 women so far in, in that organised way and building their capacity, doing training, supporting technical and managerial capacities as well as addressing psychosocial uh, questions particularly in the context of violence and bombing as well as looking at supporting their income generating capacity, providing support to equipment, to infrastructure, you know, to communications to help them to build and operate their businesses. Well, with such a small area of land and such a big population, which is Gaza, could I say that some of these farms are more like an urban community garden that we'd have in Australia, or is that not correct? Yeah, small scale, certainly, you know, you and your listeners understand, you know, the Gaza is the most densely populated area in, in the world. So it's not like there's large tracts of land for broadacre farming. Having said that, these are commercial enterprises where they're wanting to grow food for feeding people for production and scale. So it is a bit different to community gardens where typically the focus isn't necessarily so much on production um, as it is about, you know, self-provisioning and and people making that connection with, with nature. 
you know, these are very much commercial businesses. And it's also worth saying that while the land area might be small in scale, if knowledge and capacity and use of that land is is at a, a reasonable level, uh, quite a lot of food can actually be produced. And the other statistic that I was going to mention is that there are, according to the Food and Agriculture Organisation, about 800 million people globally engaged in urban agriculture, and they produce about 20% of the world's food today. So these small-scale urban city-based food-growing activities do already generate uh, a lot of food and can be very productive, and particularly uh, in terms of healthy food, vegetables especially. Yes, I think you're right in terms of the small scale of their operations, but they're focused on growing as much food as they can and being a commercially viable enterprise. So in that sense, they're distinct from community gardens. I've read that fish is one of the products that they are working on. With the restrictions on fishing for the people on the coast of Gaza, how do they produce their fish? There's the potential for aquaculture, so that's fish farming. In fact, as part of these discussions that we've been having with the coordinators of GUPAP over these past weeks, with our allied organisation, Global Gardens of Peace, we've introduced them to an international solidarity network called Aquaculture Without Frontiers, and an introduction has been made to GUPAP to look at how one or more aquaculture operations can be set up and operated in the context of Gaza. Is seed saving possible? Absolutely, it is possible. And in fact, one of the members of the Urban Women Agripreneurs Forum, whose story we're going to feature on the Sustain website in the coming days, is in fact a seed saver herself. Uh, Hanadi, her name is, and, and her story will shortly be published on our website. In some instances, the agricultural companies, multinationals, have got the seed saving sewn up. How do they get round that? Yeah, that's a really good point, Jan, and that's one of the big problems in the food system that, again, your listeners may be already familiar with, but it's worth emphasising that when we're talking about the unsustainability and the inequality that really characterises the contemporary and global industrialised food system, it is exactly what you just put your finger on there, the concentration of ownership across uh, many of the key sectors of the food system that is the real issue here and it is facilitated by these growing agri-business corporations which increasingly are getting integration with you know, the financial sector and with the, the data and, and, and tech companies as well. There's been a number of studies by International Panel of Experts on Sustainable Food Systems uh, that came out with a report a couple of years ago called Too Big to Feed, Impacts of Consolidation and Mega Mergers Across the Agri-Food Sector, and, and Seeds is one of the key sectors where uh, there's now about four, only four corporations globally that control 70 to 80 percent, I think it is, of the proprietary seed market. Now, the way around that is through peasant farmers, small-scale farmers uh, working together to save their seed, their non-hybrid seed, their, their heritage varieties, like the Diggers Club here in uh, in Melbourne and Australia does, open pollinated seed and to create local seed banks. Um, of uh, indigenous and heritage varieties and to share that seed freely amongst their networks and that's what they're doing in Gaza. I'd imagine the beehives are pretty important. Absolutely and in fact we've already featured a story of a beekeeper, Samar, on our website. Beekeeping is extremely important and pollinators, uh, bees in particular, are absolutely critical to 
the food security of everybody, not just in Gaza, but everybody around the world. They pollinate at least a third of all our food crops and species, and in particular, the ones that keep us healthy, the, the fruits, the vegetables, and the nuts depend on pollinators. So again, that's one of the problems of the industrialised food system. We've seen devastating collapses in pollinator numbers and species over the last few decades as the global chemical-based food system has really ramped up. So beekeeping, sustainable forms of agriculture, agroecology, these things are all absolutely critical to a sustainable and resilient food system, both for Gaza and for Australia for that matter and, and for all of us. And access to organic pest control? Yes, absolutely. Again, that's, uh, that's where knowledge and capacity building and training is so important. Working with the women-owned farmers and other agriculturalists in, in Gaza and Palestine, in looking at agroecological techniques, working with nature rather than against it, and looking at integrated forms of, of pest management, polycultures, you know, permaculture techniques, those kinds of things where you've got not monocultures, where you know they're, they're, those monocultures become breeding grounds for pests and, and diseases, but you're you know, looking at intercropping. You've got flowers amongst food crops, you know, provide habitats for beneficial predators and, and have those positive interactions across the whole system. Where does marketing come into it? Well, marketing is absolutely essential in terms of having viable businesses, and that's another key part of the capacity building and assistance that GUPAP has been providing over these years and wants to continue and expand with the Urban Women Agripreneurs Forum, you know, having, having local campaigns, educating consumers about the importance of supporting their local producers, particularly women-owned businesses, as being in the long-term interest of everybody and having a, a resilient and food-secure system and one that isn't vulnerable to, to high levels of import dependency. We've seen through the pandemic just how vulnerable our food system is with uh, these kinds of shocks and disruptions, that's only going to increase according to most models and predictions as the uh, impacts of climate change and the climate emergency become more prevalent, building a shared understanding of producers working with consumers, I prefer to call them food citizens, local populations, building that understanding you know, from primary school right through the education system and more broadly across the population about where the food comes from uh, and why it's so important to uh, work with and support local producers is absolutely critical and that is, is what you know this kind of local food system marketing is all about. Surely, Nick, one of the most serious vulnerabilities is Israel and their bombing and raiding of the country every couple of years. Well, of course, that's the terrible truth about this situation, that it's an ongoing war since the Nakba of, of 1948. You know, the, the effective creation of permanent blockade and Gaza becoming an open-air prison, if you like, where people are not allowed, you know, free movement and free entry, where what comes into the, to the Gaza Strip is very tightly controlled and where, as you say, there's regular outbursts of, of violence and, and large-scale violence. You know, none of these issues will have a lasting resolution until that situation is completely and, and permanently addressed. And this is where GUPAP and the Palestinian movement is really calling for a last and, and just and full and complete peace for the restoration of, of all their rights, the return of occupied territory, the creation of the Palestine state and the fulfilment of the aspirations for the Palestinian sovereignty, including food sovereignty. That's at the, the very heart of this conversation. Am 
must be absolutely devastating for the women farmers and for all the people when they see all their hard work destroyed. I mean, not all their work, but a, a proportion of their work destroyed by bombing. Absolutely, and I've got statistics here provided from GUPAP. These are Ministry of the Palestinian Ministry of Agriculture that was released in uh, in June this year, following an analysis of the damage that was done to the food system of Gaza following that those May bombings. In total, they've estimated 126 million dollars. That would be US dollars in direct losses and damage, and then a further nearly 79, 80 million dollars in indirect losses and damage. So we spoke about beehives before, $700,000 worth of damage to beehives, $500,000 worth of damage to small-scale livestock, you know, rabbit-keeping, poultry, including home-based backyard chickens, $4 million damage to meat hens, $600,000 damage to deaths of, uh, of cows and sheep, $400,000 damage to um, laying hens, uh, $1.5 million damage to fish, farming and half a million dollars damage to fish ships. I mean, these are some of the statistics that give you a bit of a glimpse into the loss and damage and hardship that was inflicted through that brief campaign of uh, intense bombing back in May. And that's where we in the developed country like Australia can do our bit to help to restore that. Absolutely. So, you know, our campaign, we're only trying to raise $25,000 and support 50 women through this campaign. But our call is to, you know, all people of conscience, all people who can can empathise with the situation in Palestine and try to imagine just how difficult life is there for uh, the people under uh, these decades of of oppression and occupation and now blockade and and bombing, uh, who are only trying to live a dignified life, which is surely what, you know, all of us are trying to do in Australia or otherwise, trying to live our lives and to have food on the table and, and to be food secure. That's, you know, that's exactly what they're trying to do in Palestine, in, in Gaza. And that's what this campaign is about, to support them to realise those aspirations. They've come to us and asked us for assistance. This is a request for solidarity. It's not a request for aid. Um, they've been very clear about that. They don't want a, uh, a handout. They don't want more food dependency. You know, they're, they're sick of, you know, being dependent on imported food and imported aid. They want the capacity to feed themselves. That's what food sovereignty means. That's what this campaign is about. And that's our call to your listeners and to uh, all people who might hear this message in Melbourne and, and around Australia and internationally, small step in the right direction of a true and lasting peace for a free and sovereign Palestine. And how do we help? You help by uh, visiting our website, sustain.org.au, where we've got full information on the matters that I've spoken about, profiles of some of the women who will be benefiting directly from this campaign, and then the, the donations are through the GoFundMe campaign that we have launched. Thanks very much, Jen. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Good morning. You're on 3CR Breakfast, and that was Jan Bartlett who caught up with Nick Rose, the Executive Director of Australian food sustainability organisation Sustain, about the work and challenges of the Gaza Urban and Peri-Urban Agricultural Platform and Sustain's involvement in an international solidarity campaign to raise money to support the women of Gaza to realise their goals of food sovereignty and an independent and resilient food system to find out more, you can go to the website sustain.org.au. 
and I hope everyone's having a wonderful Monday morning. Uh, you're joined today by Jacob and our co-hosts here who are going to introduce themselves. Hey there, I'm Evan. Evan is our new co-host, so welcome, Evan. It's a pleasure. It's really great to be here this morning. Yeah, pleasure to have you on board. Um, and what is your first impression of 3CR? Ah, it's great. Really excellent vibe here in the studio. You really, yeah, really can tap into a huge history, huge connection with amazing people, amazing causes, and also, yeah, a lot of individuals wanting to um, do a lot of great things. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I'm glad you have such uh, high high hopes and high <laughs> expectations of um, community radio. There's definitely some amazing shows and programs on the station. Um, and we've got a really great show coming up for you. So later on at about eight o'clock, we're going to be speaking to Dr. Emma Shortis, um, who is a professor um, from RMIT. She's a research fellow. Um, and we're going to be speaking to her about COP26 in Glasgow, so all of the stuff that's been going down there. Um, what are your thoughts on Australia and climate, Evan? Oh, it's so disappointing. I mean, we're really lagging behind the world in such a terrible way, and you just wish that somehow, in some way, that the government would be able to really understand the depth of the climate crisis that the world is facing at the moment. 100%, yeah, I think... I think everyone um, who is listening will agree Australia has been a bit of a climate laggard, so I think it'll be interesting to, to see um, if there's any hope that we will increase our ambition. Um, and also joining us from the Studio 2 is the wonderful Fong. Fong, are you with us? Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. Sorry, just having a slight mishap in Studio 2 this morning. That is a okay um, community radio, we're always about adapting and taking risks. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and here you are. How are you going today? I'm really well. I'm really excited to have Evan with us in the studios and, yeah, to have a great show um, coming up today. Sure thing. Well, thanks for, for joining us, Fung. It's a pleasure to co-host with you as usual. Um, and so Evan has prepared an amazing segment about the COVID-19 situation in PNG. So I might ask Evan if you want to introduce that for us. Yeah, thanks so much, Jacob. We know right across low-income countries, COVID-19 vaccination coverage is really, really low. And according to the most recent Our World in Data Statistics, only 4.1% of people in low-income countries have received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. And Papua New Guinea, Australia's nearest neighbour, it's no exception, with just over 1% of the population fully vaccinated. So you compare that to Australia, overall fully vaccination rate is about oh, 75% for the entire population. So massive discrepancy that's there. And PNG, hospital systems are being completely overwhelmed, health infrastructures under strain, and horrifying reports of mass graves and mortuaries being completely full. So it's a pretty shocking and alarming situation. So to build a more complete picture of how the virus is affecting the country, I spoke with Ian Kemish. Ian comes to the conversation with a huge background in international affairs. He used to be Australia's ambassador to Germany and Switzerland, 
big roles within Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, but most importantly, he was the High Commissioner to PNG as well too, from 2010 to 2013, and he grew up in the country as well. Um, so I spoke with him about his opinion on how bad the COVID-19 situation is in PNG. It's bad. Uh, it's uh, as bad as it gets in our neighbourhood. The trouble is that data is not reliable and not good enough to give us a very accurate picture of, of what's happening in the country. But when you put things together, you get a pretty strong impression. Um, we had only a week ago the head of the Port Moresby General Hospital in the city's capital reporting that uh, about 80% of patients uh, presenting because they had concerns about COVID actually had COVID. Um, that's an extraordinary figure. Clearly, the official figures, which are already sort of very much on the rise, understate the real nature of the problem. And the, the, the death rate is measured best in terms of the, unfortunately, you know, the bodies that are piling up in hospital morgues in places like uh, Port Moresby and Garoka and other regional hospitals across the country. If we think back to last year, Ian, and reflecting on some of the images that really shocked the world, so looking back to, say, Italy early on in 2020, and then images of graves, outdoor mass graves being dug within New York. If we think now about PNG and compare the situation to those images that really shocked and, and horrified the world. Are we talking about a, a very similar picture? Yes, we are in um, some key parts of PNG. Not not everywhere, but in some key parts of PNG, including some of the key urban centres. And it is interesting when you reflect on some of those other countries. Um, we do have a natural tendency uh, as Australians and you know, you could explore the reasons for this in a much more detailed program to, to think about and talk about and contemplate the situation in countries like the United States and the United Kingdom, Europe, Italy and so on. The situation in a place like PNG, for whatever reason, doesn't, does not loom as large in our, uh, in our cultural settings and in our, um, consumption of media as it, as those countries do. And it should. It's, it's, it's much nearer and in many ways very important to Australia. One issue that you're really passionate about is COVID-19 vaccine coverage. And you've written recently about COVID-19 vaccine coverage in Papua New Guinea. Internationally, the world's reached a point where global vaccine supply problems are being slowly addressed, which is great. But in PNG, and this is the case for so many low-income countries, only just 1% of the population has been fully vaccinated. How has PNG found itself in this position? Uh, a degree of complacency uh, going into this wave has needed to be shaken. That's one thing. Regrettably, Countries like PNG, with, yes, low literacy rates, but also where their own national government um, does not loom large in people's everyday lives, and so people tend to uh, um, look outside government for sources of information. Uh, in, a, in a place like, like PNG, 
many Papua New Guineans turn to Facebook for their information. Smartphones are widely available in the country these days. People access information through Facebook. It's a real craze. Whether it's Facebook or other social media, these people uh, can be terribly vulnerable to the kind of misinformation and nonsense that is peddled by the anti-vax movement in the West. Uh, they also, by the way, pick up on public debate in neighbouring countries like Australia. And we have seen here in Queensland, but elsewhere, um, a real debate about AstraZeneca that your listeners would all be familiar with. Um, and, of course, AstraZeneca has been one of the mainstays of the vaccine supply for Papua New Guinea. Um, so as in many other parts of the developing world, there can be a sense that, well, you know, you guys don't like Astra AstraZeneca, so why are you pushing it on us? Thinking about a number of those different elements, there's a number of systemic challenges that you've drawn attention to. You've also pointed to the role of vaccine hesitancy and people responding to misinformation and um, debates that are happening in Australia as well too. And what do you think as being the most manageable barrier to tackle first in order to increase coverage? Yeah, so what's what's the way forward in, in a way? Yeah. I, um, look, I, I think that um, the picture, it's important to point out that the picture on vaccine hesitancy is changing. Regrettably, it's death that's changing people's minds. Uh, I'm detecting just through social media, through the work of our foundation, the tide is beginning to shift that more and more Papua New Guineans are turning up and wanting the vaccine. So the arms are beginning to present themselves. As a, as a friend in the Australian government said to, to me the other day, the challenge uh, for Australia as a supporter, as a supporter and for PNG itself is going to be to make sure that as the arms begin to present themselves, that the jabs are there available, uh, immediately, um, on demand. Now that, uh, isn't just about getting, uh, vaccines to PNG. That's about ensuring that the Papua New Guinean authorities themselves are supported to ensure the distribution of vaccines through, you know, cold chain linkage. The distribution happens promptly across the country. I know that a lot of effort's going into that right now, and I do feel that this will all get better. It is a race, but I think the efforts that are being made, hitting vaccine hesitancy and ensuring that the distribution's ready, um, will get us a lot further down the road. Drawing upon that rich global experience that you have, Ian, do you think there's a real rethink that's needed with respect to how wealthier countries can support poorer nations with respect to COVID-19 vaccine rollouts? I just think that there's a risk, people from developed countries, Australians, great example, um, that you know we're going to have a positive, optimistic time uh, over the next few months as border restrictions drop, international travel resumes, and we are reunited with friends and loved ones across state borders, um, there's a risk that we forget that the rest of the world is not necessarily having this experience and that on current rates, uh, some um, developing countries won't see their populations vaccinated for another 10 years. And that poses a serious moral obligation, I believe. But beyond that, um, as many people have said, 
this isn't over until it's over for everybody. Thinking about that role of assistance that can be provided, you're the chair of the Kokoda Track Foundation. How has the foundation had to change and alter what it does in response to the pandemic? So KTF uh, does a range of health, education, leadership, livelihoods work right across PNG. It, it, it takes its inspiration from the uh, common struggle between Australians and Papua New Guineans in 1942 on the Kokoda track, but it works right across PNG. And uh, we have pivoted completely to uh, responding to the COVID situation uh, in everything we do over the course of the last 18 months. We've done it with a lot of success. We've actually been much more active in the last couple of years than even previously. Uh, and, you know, combating COVID um, is present in our approach to education and, and, and right across the board. Right now, we're, uh, we're seriously engaged in um, working to start rolling out effectively COVID vaccines in what I might describe as our home province, the province where our activities first began, Oro province where the, the village of Kokoda is. And we're getting there. We've conducted um, training for community health workers across the, the province. We have um, almost finalised now a um, cold chain um, uh, distribution program through the province and we have started vaccination patrols. Um, we've, we've, this is how we know all about reluctance. We, uh, um, we're encountering it on the ground on a daily basis. But again, uh, a bit of local leadership and, um, an explanation and time spent with people often leads to that reluctance, reluctance dropping away. And if listeners want to support the work of the Kokoda Track Foundation, how might they go about doing that? Well, I think I'd just, um, thanks for the question. I would just, uh, draw your attention to our, uh, our website, ktf.ngo. Um, and, uh, you'll quickly find a, a way to make donations. But if you'd like to get engaged in, in some other way, there are contact details there. Ian, thank you so much for chatting with me today and really providing such a great update on the COVID-19 situation in Papua New Guinea and, and the way ahead as well. Really appreciate it a lot. Thank you. Thank you, Evan. Ian Chemist, Chair of the Kokoda Track Foundation and former High Commissioner to PNG, speaking with me about the COVID-19 situation in the country. This is 3CR Monday Breakfast. As Ian discussed, there are heaps of localised factors that are really contributing to low vaccine coverage in PNG. Vaccine hesitancy being a major one, but it's also a super powerful reminder too of inequalities that exist with respect to how the COVID-19 vaccination um, is making its, well, the COVID-19 vaccine, I should say, is making its way around the world. Um, we just see a terrible divide of uh, along the lines of wealth in richer and poorer nations. And PNG, country where incomes, I think, are a bit over 2000 Australian dollars a year, prime example of that, where the money isn't, you also um, won't find any vaccines as well. So really dreadful situation.
Yeah, well, that, thanks for bringing us that piece, Evan. That was fantastic. And I think I read somewhere that PNG has about a vaccination rate of 2% in their, their adults. Is that correct? Barely even that. Some reports would say it's just above 1% as well, too. So effectively no coverage amongst the population as well. So you just sort of, I suppose, Imagine in Australia, if we had a vaccine coverage rate of 1%, what sort of panic stations would exist here? And the same would apply in any other developed country. Um, the health effects of a lack of vaccination are the same everywhere. The virus doesn't discriminate, and it's really scary, as Ian was talking about what's happening in PNG and thinking about those images that we saw last year of New York and Italy and mass graves um, being dug. It's a horrible, horrible, horrible virus, and the pandemic definitely hasn't stopped. It's raging on. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think here on Monday Brecky, Fung and I have done a bit of coverage um, about some of the uh, the vaccine uh, deals with the World Trade Organization and how a large part of the problem is actually that um, smaller countries aren't given the, the intellectual property rights to be able to develop the vaccine um, when they have the capacity to do so. Isn't that right, Fung? Yeah, that's right. Um, and And the fact that as well, not enough vaccines are being donated to the COVAX scheme mm. means that, yeah, these smaller, low-income countries don't have enough um, vaccines to start, you know, distributing them to their population, which is a huge issue. Um, and I think what you were saying before, Evan, about, you know, if we if we had had those same vaccination rates in Australia, there would be no doubt an uproar. Um, and I think we should uh, be... We should really be looking to our neighbouring countries and mm. trying to help as best we can because, you know, it's not just about us as one country. The rest of the world is still struggling to vaccinate their populations. It's going to take a really long time for the entire world to, quote-unquote, get back to normal. So, That's right. Mm. We're not all... Um, through this until we're all vaccinated or something like that. We're, we're all in this together, as they say. Yeah, it's only over until the last person's vaccinated, definitely. It's yeah. a super, super scary and precarious situation. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, thanks, uh, Evan, for bringing that uh, amazing interview. Now we're going to hop to a couple of news headlines. Um, so I know there's been some stuff happening with the protests um, for COP26, it's been a big weekend, Jacob, definitely. As talks for the COP26 continue to stall in Glasgow, across the world, just this weekend, hundreds of thousands of protesters right around the world took to the streets to demand greater global action to reduce carbon emissions and limit the damage of global warming. And marking an international day of climate justice, in Glasgow alone, 100,000 protesters demanded that world leaders commit to greater action to limit the effects of the climate crisis. But sadly, little indication a few weeks into COP26 that a meaningful global agreement will emerge from the talks. And really looking forward to your interview um, just uh, coming up in hmm, a little over 15 minutes' time. Yeah, no, I think I saw some images um, online about the protests and it looked like even though it was pouring with rain, it was freezing in Glasgow, it was so good um, to see so many people taking a stand and in particular um, indigenous communities leading those marches because I think a lot of the uh, the activism 
and the discussions that we've been having around climate change have come from predominantly, let's be honest, white um, inner city folks. So I think it's great that um, we're finally hearing and, and recognising that Indigenous people need to have and must be centred in these conversations as well. No doubt whatsoever. It's so essential that communities that are going to be most affected by climate change and global warming really have their voices heard. And that's been a really powerful part of protests around the world over the weekend is that recognition of Indigenous First Nation voices and ensuring that that frames the debate as well as the world looks to hopefully find a different way, although I'm not hopeful um, as to what will emerge from these conversations. But continuing the pressure, continuing to put a spotlight on what's occurring is absolutely essential if the debate's going to change. Mm. Moving to a slightly different issue, almost three months after the fall of Kabul, the United Nations has warned that the country of Afghanistan is facing a severe famine over the Northern Hemisphere winter. So according to the World Food Program, more than half of the population already faces food insecurity and there are concerns that over 3 million children may face malnutrition. Wow. Those are horrible, horrible numbers. So last three months, the economy in Afghanistan has nosedived and it's in a state of withdrawal, a state of ruin following the withdrawal of US troops and the Taliban takeover of the country. According to multiple international sources, Afghani residents are now resorting to selling possessions, and in some really um, dreadful cases, their own children in order to buy food. And looking ahead to next year, the UN has warned that in 2022, 95% of the population may be living in poverty. Wow, my heart breaks for Afghanistan. I just I can't imagine what a turbulent and like destabilizing year this has been not only with the covid pandemic but you know as you said the takeover of the taliban and i think it's going to be an immense international challenge to be able to ensure that these people have access to food and and to supplies and to the things they need um so i do hope um that even though a lot of our resources are being put into you know, resolving the pandemic, um, that the world doesn't turn their back on Afghanistan because that sounds horrific. Oh, it, it is. It's so horrific. And it's also just heartbreaking and typical to how quickly Afghanistan has fallen out of mainstream news, mainstream mm. headlines as well, mm. as the situations continue to deteriorate. And just a horrible thought to think of Mm, so many individuals experiencing such awful hardship, as you were saying, Jacob, on a political front, but then also just in terms of having daily needs being met as well. It's a, yeah, it's a disaster that sits there on the Middle East and um, heartbreaks as well too, reading the news and, and thinking about what's ahead. And finally, looking a little bit closer to home, in Australia, according to recent data from the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, NACHO, First Nations people have been severely disproportionately affected by the pandemic. In New South Wales, 10% of all COVID cases are First Nations people. And even though they only represent 3% of the entire New South Wales population, it means that if you're a First Nations person in New South Wales, that you're more than three times more likely to contract coronavirus than a non-Indigenous person. 
more broadly speaking, on the theme of vaccine coverage, which is very much framed the show this morning, The Guardian has reported that the current gap between the percentage of fully vaccinated Indigenous and non-Indigenous people is 21.5%. Shocking, shocking. Um, And to me, that reads as an abject failure of the state um, to ensure that the most vulnerable communities are vaccinated. I think we've seen time and time again, even last year with the public housing towers, how um, the community's most vulnerable people are always the ones that are going to be affected most. Um, And yet it always seems to be, you know, the very wealthy, um, white, predominantly people who are advocating for for less uh, restrictions and more opening up. Uh, Fung, did you have any thoughts to share on this one? I think you put it perfectly, yeah. Um, Those are my thoughts exactly. Mm. And I think just as well it's important to... um, put community workers um, at the forefront of these campaigns to get people vaccinated. Um, it's no use having over-policing or, or mm. people who aren't within those communities speaking to Indigenous folks or people in public housing to, to explain to them, you know, uh, the benefits of the vaccine and, and talk them through any hesitancies that they have. Um, it just makes me think of, you know, a couple of weeks ago on Tuesday breakfast, we spoke to someone from a Moroccan soup bar and they were saying that uh, they were going to give out, you know, food with every vaccination and be there for every step of the process to talk people through, uh, you know, before the vaccine, during and afterwards as well, in case they had any follow-up questions. And I think that's the best way to do it, doing it with care mm. uh, and not being, you know, condescending or patronising. Um, yeah. For sure. Care, compassion and community is always um, a great way of approaching a a public health crisis. Um, And I have a fourth headline for us in some good news today. Um, Recently, the New South Wales government announced that there will be a judicial inquiry into gay and transgender hate crimes between 1970 and 2010. Um, So this is... A, a bit different from a parliamentary inquiry because it actually gives the court powers to summon persons of interest um, and they can also compel witnesses to give evidence to the court. So this came about as a result um, of a parliamentary inquiry into the hate crimes of that period. Um, so between about the late 80s and the 90s was probably when it peaked um, during, as we know, the AIDS epidemic um, and growing LGBTQIA plus visibility um, leading to uh, people essentially being intolerant of that. Um, and so some of the high-profile cases include a WinTV weatherman and newsreader, Ross Warren, who disappeared off a headland in Bondi um, in July 1989. And he was aged just 25. Um, and so that case still remains unresolved to this day. So I think it's it's really promising news. It's um, the, the judicial inquiry has been welcomed by lawyers, um, by the families of the victims, and by LGBTQIA plus organisations. Um, and it, it, as I said, it came about as a result of a, a parliamentary inquiry. And some of the, the findings of that inquiry pretty much um, give formal recognition to a lot of the things that we already know, which is basically that the, the victims of hate crimes carry physical, mental, and emotional trauma as a result of their experiences. And probably the, uh, the most significant finding was that the New South Wales police failed in its responsibility to properly investigate 
um, cases of historical gay and transgender hate crimes. So I do hope um, that this judicial inquiry underway not only brings justice for the victims, but also holds um, the the perpetrators and the police to account for failing to uphold um, and protect these vulnerable communities. Um, but yeah, that was our, our news headlines for today. Fung, did you have a song you wanted to play? Um, yes, I do. This is from one of my favorite artists. Um, she is, uh, she was born in Papua New Guinea, but, um, now works here in so-called Australia. And this is her track called, uh, Him, and it's by Nairi.
that was the song Hymn by Nairi. Up next, one of the group uh, groups fighting to overturn the indefinite closure of a community garden by the management of Collingwood Children's Farm joined Annie from Solidarity Breakfast with an update from the campaign. Here speaking with Annie is Giles Filkey. who is one of the members of the Collingwood Community Gardeners Group. G'day, Giles, how are you? Hi, Annie, how are you going? Thanks for having me. Yeah, can you give us an idea of what's been going on since the Collingwood Children's Farm decided that uh, they're going to lock the gates for OH&S concerns at the uh, community garden? Yeah, so that was a while ago now in uh, May and uh, we haven't... Uh, had any resolution to that, nor have we had a uh, plan announced from the, the children's farm, just um, intermittent updates and sort of changing changing stories. So initially it was the um, OH&S um, safety issues that were given as a reason for closing the gardens, but um, as the gardeners uh, all banded together around this and, and uh, you know, after the shock of kind of being told you know, they weren't able to access the gardens. We kind of organised to, um, you know, work through the issues, try and get what needed to be fixed, fixed. And the farm rejected that um, pretty straightforwardly. And so we haven't been able to get back onto the plots uh, since May. Yeah, which is really unfortunate, especially in lockdown. Yeah, I mean, it's just been a massive toll on a lot of people's mental health because there was something that, um, you know, People living in, uh, like I do, in apartments that don't have any green space or gardens um, in in the Yarra area, uh, in the Yarra City Council or in the Abbotsford Collingwood area, especially, um, you know, rely on to be able to go and um, spend some time uh, outside, you know, tending tending the gardens that they've had. Maybe some of us have had had gardens for only a year or two. Some of some of us have had gardens for a lot longer, and so even just the the, the the lack of warning, uh, you know, taking that sort of activity away from people during the pandemic has been pretty pretty hard on on a lot of people's um, mental health. That's for sure. It's a really important uh, community initiative, the uh, uh, community garden, which has been going on for uh, you know over forty years. Uh, yeah. The the idea that the uh, children's farm, which was also something that was fought for by the mm. community, or else it wouldn't be mm. there still, be, mm. um, is uh, because they have some sort of plan that they think will uh, help their business model is really unfortunate, isn't it? Yeah, it seems to be a um, a kind of. Uh, conflict between a social enterprise model for community, which is about, you know, um, I guess what I would say is a more like paternalistic approach to community where people get told what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do. And the original idea of the garden was allotments where they, uh, you know, would come down, volunteer, keep things running, uh, fix things when they needed fixing. And, um, you know, the, the children's farm is somewhat uh, separate to that and, and, it, and it was a garden and an allotment garden that grew up alongside the, the farm and obviously is a part of that farm uh, farmland area down by the Yarra Banks but 
um, it really doesn't um, have the, the same um, sort of remit, I suppose, as the children's farm itself, especially as it's being run today. And, and that's the issue is that it feels like we're being treated like um, tenants, you know, like renters, essentially, who have been told, um, oh, we're, you know, we're, we're repossessing the, the property you've been leasing, so you need to get out and that's it. But, it, you know, not even that because we weren't even allowed to grab our stuff before we were locked out, essentially. It's pretty outrageous. Superfluous yeah. to requirements. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It feels very, um, uh, well, to be honest, it feels like the opposite of community to us, that's for sure. So um, the plan now is to take and gather the, the petition that we've been running um, in, the, in the time um, since we've been locked out. So there's about 3,000 signatories of a petition we've had online um, on a megaphone petition and deliver that to the committee of management hopefully the next week or so um, at a, an event online which they would um, you know, hopefully uh, want to attend and we've invited Richard Wynn's office to come down to that uh, meeting as well as well as the federal member for Melbourne um, and then obviously the local councillors and Stephen Jolly's told me he'd, he'll definitely be there so um, there'll be an event that we'll We'll um, publicise in the next few days um, with a time and date for a public um, presentation of the of the petition, um, which basically only has three um, three de- three key demands, which is to re- reinstate access to the garden, to address any safety issues, and um, to allow uh, the gardens to 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 thrive. Uh, so people can find out about this uh, online event from the uh, Facebook page? Yeah, well, if they sign the Megaphone petition, they'll get an email about it in the next couple of days. So the Megaphone petition is called um, Protect Collingwood, Child- uh, Collingwood Community Garden, sorry. Um, and that's the Megaphone petition. Um, I could maybe send that through to you. Um, but the email will go out through the, the petition um, and there'll be an event online um, where we deliver the petition to the Committee of Management and hopefully one of their representatives is there to, to receive it. Yeah, great. The, there was, before I let you go, one of the uh, mm. things is uh, that was uh, a tactic, which was that mm. uh, the uh, there would be an increase in um, community gardeners becoming members of the Collingwood mm. Children's Farm because mm-hmm. uh, you lost your ability to have uh, you, you were on the steering committee. You, you, mm. know, yeah. Did, how did that go? Um, well. The committee, the committee of management is, is a, um, a, ma- a manager of public land, of the Crown land, which is the banks of the Yarra River. And that is um, voted in by the members of the Collingwood Children's Farm, and we're all members of the Children's Farm. And so the um, uh, annual general meeting of the Children's Farm needs to be held in the next few months, um, and we'll all be attending that and making our case for the mismanagement, essentially, of this whole issue. I mean... Sure, the um, farm is a bigger question, but the mismanagement of this particular part of the of the uh, children's farm and of the Collingwood Community Gardens is a real issue for us, and we just want representation on there for gardeners, um, so that these kind of issues don't uh, ever occur again, and we can just get back to gardening. Thanks for talking to us, Giles. Thanks so much for having me, Annie. That was Annie there from Solidity. 
Solidarity Breakfast with that report. As mentioned in that audio, um, they do have a petition, uh, a megaphone page, which you can visit and, and sign the petition, and we'll pop that link in our show notes later this morning. If you would like to know more, you can also visit their Facebook page by visiting facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash digging dot in dot gardeners. Thanks, Fong. At the moment, global climate talks are happening at the Conference of Parties 26 in Glasgow, with Australia receiving global criticism for its lack of ambition on climate. Joining us now for a live interview is Dr. Emma Shortis, who is a research fellow at the EU Centre of Excellence at RMIT University. She's an expert in the USA and a co-host of RMIT's People and Culture podcast, Barely Getting By. And she also published a book called Our Exceptional Friend. Uh, Emma, welcome to the program. Hey, Jacob. Thanks for having me. Not a problem at all. It's our pleasure. Um, so let's let's talk about COP26. There's been some mixed comments um, coming out of the conference with Greta Thunberg describing it as a global north greenwash festival. How are you feeling overall about COP26? Yeah, look, it's a really hard question because I, I think I kind of swing, like a lot of people, I swing pretty wildly between hope and despair um, as I'm looking at these talks unfold. I think in terms of hope... Um, I would look to some some pretty significant breakthroughs. Like there's been an agreement by I think it's over 40 countries now to phase out coal-fired power. There's also been a really significant agreement by I think now over 100 countries to commit to reduce methane emissions, which is methane is, is kind of one of the worst offenders of greenhouse gases. So reducing methane emissions by um, 2030 is a really significant breakthrough. So there's that. There's a lot of positives and some analysis and modelling coming out of the University of Melbourne suggests that assuming that, that all of these promises are financed and kept, we may be able to keep global warming to 1.8 degrees, which is pretty significant given, I think, how dire it was looking kind of in the lead up to this talk in terms of agreement. So so there's a lots of reason to hope, I think. Um, and in that sense, Glasgow has probably given, so far at least, has given us about, about as much as we could hope for. But as always, I suppose, with these kind of international agreements, that's not enough. You know, Glasgow is not the kind of radical reshaping of climate politics that we need and what, you know, what Greta Thunberg is asking for in order to, to stop the absolute worst with global warming. For sure. Definitely some wins there. But as you said, is it enough? Um, and you mentioned that there was a couple of really good agreements, reducing methane by 2030 and phasing out mm. coal, um, coal, coal, essentially. Um, who are some of the leading countries in climate policy and what can we learn from them? Sure. Well, not Australia. You won't be surprised to hear. <laughs> um, look, I think there are, there are a number of countries just doing some some amazing things in terms of climate policy, but also in terms of the leadership that's required really to get these kind of enormous diplomatic meetings moving. And so I would look, you know, particularly to to places like the Marshall Islands, 
which is the country that basically led or created the High Ambition Coalition way back in 2015 that led to the Paris Climate Accords, which, you know, again, as much as they were not enough, were still a really dramatic breakthrough for, for international climate politics. So there's countries like the Marshall Islands and other, you know, it's small countries, like countries in the Pacific that are really kind of dragging developed, big development developed countries to better climate policy, particularly, you know, Australia's Pacific neighbours that are rightly demanding more and talking about, you know, how climate change is a death sentence for them and that Australia and countries like Australia in particular need to take responsibility for that. So, So there's that kind of leadership. But there's also, in terms of policy, places like New Zealand where... The region of Taranaki has historically been reliant on oil and oil extraction, but the New Zealand government has initiated a just transition policy to get Taranaki kind of off its oil addiction. And that means, you know, things like making sure people are retrained properly and and also kind of reconsidering people's relationship with work and the environment. So trialling things like a four-day work week. So, you know, we don't have to learn far. The policy is there, the technology is there, sorry, to, for Australia to learn. And I think it's it's a choice. It's a deliberate choice by the Australian government not to do so. Hey, Emma, it's Evan Wallace here. Over the last number of years, we've seen some wild swings and roundabouts when it comes to how the United States has approached climate change policy. So you're talking about the role of different countries, and we've seen over the last four years alone, President Trump attempt to withdraw uh, the US from the Paris Agreement, and now um, billions of dollars of proposed investment in the US under President Biden's Build Back Better agenda. How is it positioning itself at COP26? Yeah, this is, I think, a really tricky question. And if you really, if you want to understand what the United States is doing on the world stage when it comes to climate, you, you have to look domestically. So, you know, exactly as you said, Evan, Biden was basically kind of elected with a, a pretty radical climate program, and and it was expected expected in Australia that his radical climate program would kind of fix our climate policy as well. But it very quickly became clear, I think, that domestic politics was going to dictate his agenda. And so we've seen him, I think, kind of talk a talk at Glasgow when it comes to climate policy and do some incredibly hard work to get that Build Back Better um, legislation much closer to being passed. But what that has meant is some pretty dramatic compromise, really, with the with the ambition, with the scale of the ambition of those programs because of particularly one senator from, from West Virginia who's from coal country and, and kind of deeply entangled with, with fossil fuel interests. And that has meant that the United States has done things like kind of refi- refrain from signing that agreement that I mentioned about phasing out coal because they're worried about how this particular senator is going to take it and how it will affect his willingness to sign this, um, to, to sign on to this legislation. So I think, you know, history kind of tells us that um, we can't really rely on American declarations of, of climate leadership, unfortunately. For sure. And, and I guess speaking of climate laggards, um, Australia bringing pretty much a um, the, the Australian way, as uh, was described by leadership, to COP26, as the world is moving beyond uh, net zero and towards 2030, can we hope for Australia to inc- increase its ambition? I think we we can and should always hope for Australia to increase its ambition. Um, I don't I don't think that will happen under this government. You know, I think this government has made it pretty clear that they're not going to, you know, not only be ambitious, but they're not even going to bother kind of 
having any detailed plan for net zero to 2050. So, so this government has made its intentions clear by, you know, taking Santos and fossil fuel representatives to to Glasgow um, and refusing to sign on to any of those agreements. Um, but that doesn't mean there isn't hope, I think, for change in Australia. I think there's significant momentum, particularly at the moment, for, for climate for decent climate policies and that people are kind of recognising, you know, not only the moral imperative for that, but the economic imperative. And I think if we look to even recent polling, something like almost 70% of Australians want greater ambition and and more clearer policies on climate change, and that's bipartisan. So, So certainly we can hope for more ambition from Australia, but probably just not under this government. Thinking about the role that Australia is playing at COP26, there's been a level of commentary that by having such an underwhelming approach, it's given cover to countries who really don't want to pursue such an ambitious goal for 2030 or 2050. Do you think there's much substance to that analysis? I think there is. You know, I don't think it's necessarily um, kind of that simple, that much of a trade-off that, that other countries look to Australia and think, right, we can kind of use that to our advantage. But I certainly think that Australia's um, refusal to do anything is is well known amongst other countries. And there are some other countries who are happy to sit back and let Australia do that work of basically sabotaging those global agreements and you know they know Australia has been particularly effective at that in the past in you know back in Kyoto in 1997 for example Australia has done that I think more kind of more broadly Australia's relationship with the rest of the world and particularly our relationship with the United States which really prioritizes war and military threat above all else kind of sets Australia up to to be able to get away with this kind of behavior You know, the United States doesn't really punish Australia for for what it's doing when it comes to climate policy. And the government knows that really well and and uses it to its advantage. So so certainly Australia is useful um, to many countries in the world in that sense. Um, And it's, you know, it is affecting our reputation as well, I think. Yeah, and so you mentioned that it's it's probably not harming our reputation with the United States. Um, but I suppose with uh, large parts of the rest of the world, particularly Europe and Asia, who are mostly on board with um, net zero goals, how do you think it will affect our economic and diplomatic ties with them? Sure. Well, I think, you know, I would start by saying, like, as much as this this last week has been pretty appalling for Australia's reputation, our reputation in this sense wasn't particularly high to to begin with. You know, a country knew other countries knew what what Australia is like when it comes to climate policy in particular. But I do think you know when you combine that with Australia's the Australian government's behaviour towards the French in particular, significant damage is being done um, not only to diplomatic relationships but to trading relationships in the future, particularly with the European Union, which, you know, we Australia is negotiating a free trade agreement with at the moment. And because of that behaviour towards the French and because of Australia's appalling climate policy, the European Union, I think, is going to push much harder to... Uh, to on, sorry, is going to push Australia much harder on climate policy, you know, in order to get us this kind of trade agreement. And I think very quickly we are seeing the, more broadly, we're seeing the economy shift towards a, a net zero 2030, net zero 2050 economy, which involves a really radical reshaping of, of global supply chains. And Australia relies on 
you know, digging stuff up, mostly fossil fuels out of the ground and, and sending it overseas. And that going forward is just really an untenable economic model. And if the Australian government doesn't act, if it's not trying to kind of get ahead of the curve in that sense, then Australia is going to be left behind economically and also, of course, morally. You know, I think we sometimes we lose focus of that in our discussions of climate change or discussions in the mainstream media. The, the moral imperative, you know, to make sure that the Pacific Islands don't don't drown. Like that's that's a moral imperative and also, of course, a pretty dramatic hit to Australia's diplomatic and, and economic relations. And the government just doesn't seem to care about that. You've talked about, and you just mentioned then, ensuring that Pacific islands don't drown, and that is such a scary prospect attached to global warming, countries where they're facing yeah, loss of community, loss of home, and the potential for mass um, yeah, environmental homelessness and migration to, to follow. How strongly have those Pacific Island voices been represented at COP26? And do you feel as though at um, Glasgow compared to other climate conferences, there has been more of a focus on the plight of Pacific countries relative to other international summits? I think so. I think it's certainly possible to say that. There's been a huge presence, I think, not necessarily physically from many Pacific Islands who, you know, weren't necessarily able to send leadership there, but I think the the moral presence of the Pacific Islands in particular has been huge. And also, you know, not just inside um, the talks at Glasgow, I think outside there's been a huge presence of Indigenous peoples and Pacific warriors in particular who, you know, I should say are saying, you know, we're not drowning, we're fighting. And and that means really fighting Australia. And I think the focus on that is, is increasingly clear because of that kind of climate activism that's happening mostly outside of the conference. And it's being lifted up particularly by, by European climate activists who are kind of reflecting on their role as well and, and where they can be most effective. So that has been huge. Um, and I think... That, I hope, at least, is affecting the ambition of most countries um, who are who are in Glasgow in particular. And I should say as well that, of course, that, that has direct implications for Australia, where we have particularly um, vocal and effective activists coming out of places like the Torres Strait, which, you know, face similar fates um, as the Pacific from catastrophic global warming. So this is a moral imperative for Australia at home as, as much as it is for overseas. And I think those voices and, and listening to those voices at Glasgow and, and outside of Glasgow is going to be critical really to, to achieving action, not just action on climate change, but, but a just action on climate change. You know, climate justice, I think, is, is particularly important and, again, you know, kind of is often lost sight of in, in mainstream media coverage. Yeah, it's certainly so important to, to centre those voices of, indigenous people and you know as we were talking about before from the pacific islands because they are at the front lines um and i think a large theme of this interview has been australia's lack of moral imperative and it's it's lack of actual feasible policy so i want to turn um more domestically now and and ask you um how does the technology not taxes and the carbon capture and storage policies that we're being sold how do they actually uh, stack up compared to legislated emissions reductions they don't at all <laughs> and and the government the government knows that the government is well aware of that and it's just so disingenuous you know to watch the prime minister scott morrison talk about kind of 
the, you know, the development of some like future magical technology that's going to save us because mm. the technology is there. Like we have the technology, we have the know-how, we have the policy in place. What we don't have is the willingness and, and the ambition. And, and again, you know, other countries know that. They, they see through that completely. Places like the European Union where they've already legislated, they already have a suite of policies in place. They're using existing technology, incredibly effective. And also even at home in Australia, you know, where South Australia is um, running sometimes purely off, off renewable energy. You know, this is entirely possible and not necessarily hugely expensive either. So this kind of idea of technology, not taxes or, or carbon capture and storage, which is just a furphy, you know, it doesn't work, it's too expensive um, and it's just really a licence to continue burning fossil fuels. And again, other countries know that. Our government knows that. They're, they're just kind of using it really as a, as a smokescreen to, to continue the status quo. So I think, you know, be, be super sceptical of, of that idea that of technology will save us. Also, of course, because that leaves the question of climate justice that we were just talking about, that leaves the question of climate justice aside. And, and we cannot separate the kind of technical climate policies of transition from that question of climate justice. What is it that the federal government can do that the states can't? You talked about South Australia moving to almost 100% renewable energy, and we know that there are these commitments and pledges right across states and territories in Australia. So I'm curious if there's that ability to really have a strong level of transition at a sub-national level, what can the federal government do that the states and territories can't? Well, I think the federal government can can legislate nationally for for a clear plan towards net zero um, emissions. It can legislate things like phasing out coal nationally, and it can also bring to bear the weight of basically the federal treasury when it comes to to making these transitions and supporting people through these transitions. So there's really no limit, I think, to to what the federal government can do in terms of supporting this transition. It's it's about political willingness. It's about the, the federal government in particular being beholden to fossil fuel interests and the, and the interests of a few, you know, a very small number of politicians who have interests in the status quo continuing. So the federal government can do, you know, exactly as the, the American federal government is attempting to do in getting huge legislative suites through that can assist Australia's speedy transition to net zero. What's what's missing and what we do have at the state level is is political willingness and ambition. For sure. And Emma, thank you so much for, for coming on today. I think um, Evan and I both agree you've shared some fantastic insights into Australia's place um, at COP26 and also the domestic policies at home. So thank you so much. Uh, anytime. Thanks for having me. Amazing. So that was Emma Shortis from RMIT there speaking on uh, COP26, and we're all touching wood here, um, that perhaps there might be some progress, some luck. Um, hopefully, if- hopefully. Mm-hmm. And, and really great that Emma's also drawing attention to those side agreements that are happening at COP26 as well. So we might not see that big headline that we want to see in terms of really deep and strong commitment. We know that 
between countries, that there are um, arrangements when it comes to reducing methane or whether it comes to phasing out coal or also to just sheer investment to support the uptake of clean energy technology too within developing nations. So there's a range of possibilities beyond just what the core of the conference is. And thanks um, big time to Emma to, yeah, for talking us through all of that and reminding us of the different possibilities that exist within Glasgow right now. For sure. We'll be right back after these community service announcements. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. Good morning. You're on 3CR, Brecky. Now we're going to go to a song. This one is called Confection by Max Lawrence. I see that left light glowing over me. Yes, dissolving in your mouth, my destiny. My flesh is synthesized, a crystalline device to be spectacle in the mind. I'm a new taste on the market that you wanna buy, and my body's made for profit. It's a grand design. I'm a new taste on the market. I go on, take a buy. I wanna be the vice you crave.
Welcome back. You're on 3CR Breakfast, joined by Jacob. And Fung. And Evan. And what a fantastic show it's been. Um, unfortunately, we have to wrap up now, um, but maybe we could talk a little bit about some of our favourite parts of the show. Uh, Fong, do you want to go first? Yeah, well, we started off um, listening to Jan Bartlett, who caught up with Nick Rose. They talked about um, some of the initiatives that are happening in Gaza at the moment. And uh, and then, Evan, you had a great interview at 7.30. Yeah, it was really wonderful chatting with Ian Gamish, former High Commissioner to PNG and now the Chair of the Kokoda Track Foundation, Important reminder of the immense challenges that low-income countries are facing right now when it comes to the COVID situation and, in particular, how desperate the situation is in PNG. And after that, we heard from Annie, uh, who interviewed Giles Filkey about the campaign to save the community gardens in Collingwood. I love those community gardens, Mm. so I'm very on board um, with that campaign. And I think, well, the highlight for me... Uh, regular listeners of the show would know that you know a big uh, hobby of mine is complaining about uh, the government's climate policy. So I really enjoyed uh, that interview with with Dr. Emma Shortis, and I think there were so many valid points um, raised. So yeah, we'll definitely continue to talk about climate change in the coming weeks. Um, yeah, and then hopefully um, see some positive outcomes. But that is all we have time for today, Evan. Any final words? It's been a pleasure. It's been really great chatting with the two of you and it's been so wonderful um, to be involved in such important discussion on a Monday morning. And it's been a pleasure to have you. Um, Well, we hope everyone has a good morning. Up next is Women on the Line. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.